Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm excited to have Melissa Korn on the show today. Melissa is a higher education reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Last year, she published the book, Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal, with co-author Jennifer Lovitz which exposes the ugly underbelly of elite college admissions and the devastating consequences of buying success. In this episode, we're going to talk about how we got to this point in the college admissions game and what's changed since the trial for the Varsity Blues started in mid-September. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, Melissa, so for those who might have had their head in the sand, What is Operation Varsity Blues and why are we all watching it so closely? Sure. So in March of 2019, federal prosecutors announced charges against dozens and dozens of parents and college coaches and test proctors and a bunch of other folks. Ultimately, there were 57 people charged in this case. They are accused of working with this college counselor, Rick Singer, to cheat and lie their kids' way into college. So there were two Mm -hmm. prongs of it. One had to do with standardized testing, where they would get their kids tested for learning differences. The kids would get extra time to take the exams. Enough extra time you can take it in some other location besides like your high school. They would go to this site that Rick Singer paid off an administrator there to let his own proctor in, who he paid. And that proctor would fix someone's wrong test answers, boost their test score, which doesn't guarantee admission, but might Mm -hmm. give them a bit of a leg up. So that's part one. And they would pay tens of thousands of dollars for that service. The other one had to do with athletic recruiting. And Rick Singer would help pitch the teens as star soccer players and rowers and sailors and tennis players and get them flagged as recruits or recruited walk-ons. So they weren't getting scholarships, but they were getting roster spots. And if you get flagged as a recruit, it's about as close to a guarantee as you can get at some of these really selective colleges. So they would be bribing coaches and others for that. Okay, so we're talking about this underground system where wealthy families can buy their children's way into elite institutions. And, and what colleges and universities are we talking about here? Yeah, so the scheme included coaches from Stanford and Georgetown, USC, UCLA, UT Austin, Yale. It was pretty sprawling, you know, some very selective schools. And it was about Mm -hmm. buying their kids' way in, but also the fraud element, right? Pretending that the kids were something that they weren't. Right. So there's a criminal element here and also the ethical piece for, you know, what does this mean for higher education, right? I mean, I think this was a real stomach turner when it came out for a lot of people who, you know, are raising children and trying to get them into good colleges to realize that things were so rigged, at least for the certain portion of the population. Was that your experience in reporting on this? Yeah, I think people involved in higher ed, people like me who cover higher ed, who study it, knew that admissions to particularly selective schools was not a pure meritocracy, right? That in itself was not shocking to people Mm -hmm. who have been around the higher ed universe for a while now. Well, pause there, Melissa. Explain that. What, what are the ways in which it's not? So just getting fantastic grades and having glowing letters of recommendation does not mean you'll get into the school of your choice. And it stinks, right? People 
put so much time and effort and they focus so much of their high school careers and parents focus so much of their parenting on this, this goal of admission to a particular school. But at some point, it's out of their hands, right? The admissions office is looking for really strong academics. They might be looking for people to fill particular sports teams, make sure that there's an oboe player, but not too many oboists. I always pick on oboe players. I have nothing against them. Note to self, I got to get my son started in oboe. <laughs> I know. You know, that there's not too many math majors, not too many English majors. So they're piecing together this jigsaw puzzle. And they can't have too many people in the same piece. And mm-hmm. that's really hard for a parent to kind of come to terms with. It's sometimes hard for a student to come to terms with. But ultimately, you can kind of put, present your best self to a school. But the school is looking at more than just kind of those basic credentials, right? A lot of schools, really selective schools, talk about how they got way more qualified applicants than they could take. So at some point, mm-hmm. it becomes a bit of a lottery or a bit of a crapshoot, or they go to certain other factors like, are you a legacy? Did your parent or grandparent go there? Have you or your family donated significant amounts of money over the years? Does the school think you will continue to donate in the, over the next generation? Are you best buds with the provost? Or you know, is grandpa golf partners with the dean of admissions? That factors in in some schools. And then are you an athlete? If you are a recruited athlete trying to get into one of these schools, that gives you a big leg up in the admissions process. And then there's the whole portion of strategic admissions that does not cross over into illegal (laughs) admissions activities. You know, I was, to be honest, surprised when I learned that people had college admissions coaches that they hired to work with or or even that they prepared for their standardized test, which shows my ignorance and, and the way that I prepared for college. But, you know, there's, there's this whole elite admissions market as well, right? Right. We talk about it. And my co-author, Jennifer Levitz, who's also a Wall Street Journal reporter, she and I talk in the book about this kind of spectrum, this gray area of actions to get a leg up in admissions. And probably the most benign of these is getting a test prep tutor or an admissions coach, somebody to work with you beyond just your college counselor in your high school because a lot of those counselors just don't have time to devote to every single student or significant time to devote to them. So, right, and with money comes the opportunity to buy these extra boosts by coaching, by private tennis lessons, to pay for some volunteer trip to Guatemala so you look like you're this, you know, do-gooder, socially conscious person, just to help kind of craft your application. Then it kind of shift goes further than that, you know, to making donations to what do you expect from that donation? How explicit is the promise or, or kind of hint of admission? And one of the things mm-hmm. in the Varsity Blues case was these were not donations made out of the goodness of parents' hearts. Many have admitted it was a quid pro quo. It was, I am making, I am making this payment either through Rick Singer or directly to a college coach with the promise of having my kid flagged as a recruit to get into the school. That is where we cross the line of being not okay. With a a wink and a nod and a nudge seems to still be legal, if Mm -hmm. unseemly. Yeah, so that's what really crossed the line and made this case exceptional because those of us involved in higher education, you know, have been familiar with this idea that there's the wink and the nudge, you know, you build a medical school for us and your grandchildren will probably get accepted. But This is kind of a whole new frontier of inappropriate admissions processes. 
Let me ask you, you know, do you think things have changed since the revelation of this scandal? So there's a couple answers to that. Broadly, the way that schools consider admissions, I don't think has changed dramatically in terms of whom they prioritize and in what order, right? Legacies, donors, athletes still get a leg up at a lot of Mm -hmm. schools. Some schools have changed some of their practices, like people who are flagged as recruits now get an extra layer of scrutiny. So it's not just a coach saying, hey, this guy is good, but some administrator will check the tapes or view the resume or Google around and make sure they're actually athletes, which they apparently weren't doing before. So in that Mm -hmm. regard, that's changed a bit. Yeah. And it's worth noting, too, these were kind of like single bad actors or a small group of bad actors kind of making this thing happen. It wasn't the institutions themselves really putting a stamp of approval on this sort of practice. Right. Prosecutors actually cast the universities as the victims of the fraud, that they lost out on what's called the honest services of their employees because the employees were corrupt. So yeah, the schools in that regard didn't benefit from it. Although one can argue many of them, their teams, their programs got hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations. So financially, they kind of won out because then they also got the tuition from these kids. I'm not so sure the bad press balanced that out, but I guess time will tell, right? Right. But the, the general consensus is it wasn't the university president saying, you know, let's do this. Let's, let's work with Rick Singer and take these payments and give up some spots in exchange right. for that. Exactly. So I'm always a little concerned to have these conversations about elite admissions on a public platform because inevitably I'm going to get a bunch of emails saying, okay, but you're talking about a tiny sliver of the higher education world. You know, this is irrelevant to the vast majority of students in this country. So who are we talking about here? How much of the population is even really playing this competitive admissions game? Yeah, I think that's a really important point, right? This is not the college admissions experience of the vast majority of Americans or, you know, let alone elsewhere in the world. Most students go to schools that admit most applicants. The, there are you know, a few dozen schools that admit under 30% of their applicants. When you say most students go to schools that admit most, you mean that they're not particularly selective. If you apply, you're likely to get in. Right. If you apply, you're likely to get in. Most students go to schools pretty close to their homes. They're not traveling cross country. They're not crossing state lines. Mm-hmm. They're going to a public university, a four or two year school, a regional university, a satellite campus, that sort of thing. But they are not going to an Ivy League or in what we call Ivy Plus institution. So these, Mm -hmm. a lot of ink is spilled on schools that actually enroll a very small portion of the college going population. That said, these schools do produce graduates who tend to end up in leadership positions in government and business and policy and everywhere in, in our society. So they shouldn't be ignored just because they're a small portion, right? There's a lot of money right. and a lot of power in, attached to these institutions. Right. I think at the beginning of the Biden administration, there was a report that came out detailing the percent of staffers who had graduated from elite institutions, and it was probably intended to shame them for not reaching further out into the population. But it just goes to show you're right. These are the production centers for power in our economy and in our governance system. So. It is relevant to all of us, even if it's not the game for most people. 
And there's also kind of a, I'm saying this to an economist, but there's like a trickle down element to it here as well. <laughs> Tell me more, Melissa. <laughs> um, right. We've got so many people applying to these schools with very few spots. As more and more people apply each year, the same numbers are getting in for the most part. So then it, you have that next tier of schools in terms of selectivity get more crowded as well with applications. And it, it goes kind of down the ladder. And students who maybe 10 years ago would have gotten into one of these schools at the time was admitting 20%. They're now admitting 5%. So those students mm -hmm. are going elsewhere. And then those students perhaps going to a school that, you know, somebody who wasn't even going to college 15 years ago, five years ago, now wants to go to, and they might not be getting in. So it right. does have a broader impact. There are ripple effects to this. Yeah, got it. Okay, so now let's step away a little bit from this elite game, even though you've convinced me it's important that we all should care about it. You know, for someone who is a more typical student without a trust fund or parents who are willing to break the bank to get them into some fancy college, what does admissions generally look like? I mean, what matters? What's the process of getting into a school? So admissions today does look a lot different than it did three years ago for one reason, and that's standardized testing has changed. Mm. And that is not because of the Varsity Blues case, even though that case showed that these tests, testing sites can be corrupted and you know, yeah. used wrongly. But the pandemic really changed how schools rely on standardized test scores in their admissions. So you've mm. got schools that used to require that students submit, you know, SAT or ACT scores, they would post their average scores of admitted students, they really prided themselves on that. And students would decide not to even apply to certain schools if they saw that their test scores were below that range. Right. That's the game I remember. Yes. Yes, that is certainly I remember. I remember vomiting outside the school when I went in to take my test because I was so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I even knew how much it mattered until it was over. So I had that going for me. But it also didn't, didn't show up in stellar scores after it was over either. So, Right. So that all went away during the pandemic or mm -hmm. for most people went away because you just couldn't take the test. The testing right. dates were canceled. The schools were closed. So colleges said, OK, we're not going to require these. Most said, if you want to submit your scores, you can. We'll look at them. But if you don't want to submit your scores, it will not, we will not penalize you for it. And all of a sudden, mm -hmm. that portion of the kind of review process was taken out and schools had to start looking at the other factors, you know, weighting those other factors more. Now, mm -hmm. there were some people who went to great lengths to still take the tests and were convinced that they would be penalized if they didn't submit stellar scores. We've had a bunch of schools now say, you know, we're going to continue with our test optional policy, or we're actually going to move to test blind where you can't send us your scores, period. We don't want to see them. Mm -hmm. So that has changed significantly, right? The testing is just you can apply to a tremendous range of schools without taking the SAT or ACT now. And right. you stand a good shot at as, as good a shot at getting in as you did before. Too bad I'm not going to college now. <laughs> I know. If, and if only the Varsity Blues families had just waited a couple of years, you know, yeah, they wouldn't right. have even had to do that. But then what does matter, Melissa? Because I, I remember that kind of being the centerpiece of admissions. And I know there was also, you know, make sure you do extracurricular activities and that's good and maybe volunteer some. But what really matters, I mean, especially now that test scores are off the table. Yeah. So schools are still looking for candidates who have really strong academics. That is always okay. and continues to be kind of their first point of focus. 
What are students' grades? What classes did they take in high school? They're not impressed if you got straight A's in all of the easiest classes, right? They want to see that you challenged yourself, that you took advanced placement courses if they were offered, honors courses, that sort of thing. And admissions offices that really do a holistic review will also know what your school offers. And, you know, did you take the hardest options or did you, if your school only offered two AP classes and you took both of them, then you did what you could. So the idea there is to not disadvantage people who are maybe in lower income school districts that don't have all of the competitive coursework. Absolutely. Yeah. So academics are still the main kind of factor in admissions. They also Mm -hmm. do look at extracurriculars. What do you do in your spare time? Are you working part-time at McDonald's? Are you babysitting? Are you playing video games with your friends? Or are you, you know, on four teams and three clubs and whatever it is, and different students kind of craft those narratives about who they are and what they do differently. And I think there's a lot of focus on, you know, what story are you telling about yourself, which admissions officers can kind of see through some of that. (laughs) Um, And then recommendations can matter too. your essay, all of that factor in. But honestly, if you're going to a high school with thousands of students, your college counselor isn't going to be writing a really detailed reflection of who you are. They're going to be like checking a few boxes and saying like, yes, this student attended school and did pretty well. So again, colleges know that not every college counselor can write one of those really thoughtful, heartfelt, intimate reflections on somebody. So they take, they take those with a bit of a grain of salt as well. Got it. You know, it really worries me, Melissa, that we put so much emphasis on competitive college admissions because I think there's really a sense among most students today that they have to play this game in order to get in, even though if statistically that's not completely true. And you talked about having issues with anxiety approaching your standardized testing. And I think that's a really common story. I mean, are we hurting students with this hyper competitive or at least the fact that we're implying that it's a hyper-competitive process to get into college? Well, I think we've, as a society, have created this idea that getting into college is the end goal, like that that is the prize, the offer of admission. And really, okay, you got into college, you then go to college, have a college career, graduate, have a work career and a life outside of it. It is part of your journey as an adult. It is kind of the first big decision point or or point at which you can make a few choices or have certain choices thrust upon you. But it is not the only one. And yeah, we do Mm -hmm. put a lot of focus on it, perhaps undue pressure. When Jennifer and I were researching for our book, we came across some really heartbreaking personal accounts from high schoolers in the Palo Alto, California area, talking about just the pressure they were under and how they felt like they were being turned into robots. Because it was just, you must take these classes to get into this school. Nothing else is acceptable. And that's such a shame because the students, you know, when I talk to admissions officers, they say the students who really stand out are often the ones who show passion in something. Like they're Mm -hmm. given that freedom to go explore something they really care about. If you're signing up for every extracurricular because that's what someone told you you have to do to get into school, you're not going to have the chance to pursue that passion. Right, right. Yeah. In some ways, I feel fortunate that I was oblivious to how I could have been more ambitious in in applying to colleges. I will say, you know, talking to a lot of high school counselors, high school principals, they often say that the parents take this all more personally than the students. You know, Mm, high school, high school senior will get rejected from their top choice college. 
they will be hurt. It will feel like the end of the world for a few days, maybe a few weeks, and then they will recover and they will learn to love their next choice or decide to wait a semester and try again or something, but they move forward. And it's the parents who feel like the admission is a reflection of their parenting abilities or their Mm -hmm. success as a parent. And they take it more personally, like, oh, wow, I, where did I go wrong that my kid didn't get into Yale? That's just not realistic. Sure, sure. So I'm hearing like a bit of conflicting advice here, not from you, but kind of just from this space, which is one, do the extracurriculars, two, maybe do whatever you can do to get great grades. But then on the other hand, be passionate about something and don't really think about college admissions, just be a really cool person. (laughs) And so you can um, do both. Yeah, right. Do all of the above. So let me pose this question to you. If you had college age, you know, student or someone who's aspiring to go to school or friend or family, what would be kind of like three points that you might boil it down to to say, as you think about college, these are the things you want to think about? I think focusing on academics in high school is crucial, right? You are not going to succeed in college if you don't learn basic study skills in high school. So focusing on academics is crucial. It will also help if you're looking at some of those more selective schools. So that gets you in and it gets you hopefully through, which is just as important. Right. It teaches you, you know, here's how to study for a test. Here's how to write an essay. Hopefully you get at least some of that in high school. So the academics is definitely crucial. I would say get involved in something outside the classroom, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily mean get involved in seven things outside the classroom, right? It doesn't help if you're a member of seven different clubs. But if you started to get involved in something freshman year of high school and decided it wasn't for you, sophomore year, you got involved in something else and that became something you really cared about and wanted to spend more time in, that will naturally become a bigger part of your extracurricular orbit. And that pays off. You become the vice president and the president of the club or the captain of the team or you know, first chair of violin or whatever it may be. And that shows through. I will never remember who said this, but I once heard the kind of the ideal candidate as somebody who's not well-rounded, but pointy. Mm, interesting. Not that they're doing a little bit of everything, but that they're doing a few things, one of them really well. And that always stuck with me because that seems a little bit more reasonable, a little bit more realistic mm-hmm. because there are only so many hours in the day. And I think the other thing is don't think that working a part-time job doesn't count. I think there's a lot of high schoolers that don't quite know how to put that on their college resumes, how to show like, yeah, I'm not involved in a ton of activities. I didn't do varsity tennis, but I worked 20 hours a week for the last three years. And they'll casually mention, oh yeah, I was you know, assistant manager of the store. But that's a big deal. right? You should play that up. That is a part of who you are and what you're offering to this school because there's so many skills that come along with being a manager or working just working a job as a teenager is a lot more than, than some people can pull off. And that's mm-hmm. not something to shy away from. Absolutely. Okay, let me ask you one more question. So again, we're talking about people here with the privilege of having time to plan and be strategic about thinking about going to college. The reality for a lot of people is they're, they're just living their lives and maybe they decide to go to school as an adult or they were in high school, but just didn't have the focus on academics, but they decide they want to go to college. Is admissions hopeless for these people or is there still a pathway through college? even if you're just not at all involved in this strategic admissions preparation process? There's absolutely still a pathway to college, whether it's to one of these super selective colleges that admits, you know, five to 10% of applicants, 
it might be a little different. You might not be going in the same path, but more of those schools are taking transfer students. They are looking at the pipeline through community colleges. They are taking more military veterans. They're recognizing that talent and aptitude and enthusiasm and persistence doesn't just come from 18-year-olds. And that's a really good thing to see. They're not doing it in large numbers, but they are starting to create that pipeline. And a lot of flagship state universities already have great articulation agreements with community colleges. And that's something that just continues to grow. And Melissa, community colleges are generally open admissions. Is that right? Yes. So you're not putting together this intensive application, jumping through hoops, proving yourself. You're saying, I want to come here. Here are the classes I want to take. And they say, welcome. When can you start? Which great, you know, it's and it's low cost option. Some schools help hold your hand through the process of transferring to a four year school much more than others do. Mm-hmm. So I think if you're going into it with the goal of transferring, kind of finding out what the academic support services are and, you know, who's on that other end at the end of the two or three years, helpful to kind of ask about at the at the outset. Yeah, got it. Okay, great. So we've covered the range here all the way from what to do if you want to risk going to jail to get yourself into college down to if you have no time or energy to devote anything to preparing for admissions. So I think we've covered the the gambit here. So Melissa, I know this is a busy time for you. We were actually talking on a day when the Varsity Blues trial is happening. So thank you so much for giving us the time. It was a pleasure to talk with you today. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, Please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.